0: Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis. Samuel, I think tonight they're going to go over to this side. They've got a, the piano still over here from last Sunday, and they're going to do some things. So that'll be great. All right. Very good. He was headed out. so catch him. He's quick. That's great. He's excited. All right. Genesis chapter number six, we've been moving along in our study here on foundations and I think it's very interesting how in these first several books of the Bible, or several chapters of the first book of the Bible, we see many things that took place that really set the foundation for everything else that has taken place throughout all of history. Uh, Last time we were together, which was two Sunday nights ago, because we were in our uh, praise and thanksgiving time last Sunday night, we asked the question, why death? I think it's very important to remind ourselves that uh, even though death, while it was a punishment, it was also a means by which God would bring about the future atonement for our sins because Jesus Christ would give His life to pay for our sin. And death is a wonderful example and evidence of the truth of creation happening in the way that God said that it did uh, because if there was death prior to the fall... And there would have to be death prior to the fall if there were uh, the evolutionary process or the gap theory or other things that are often proposed. It would require that there be death before the fall. If there was death before the fall, then death would not be the means by which God would be able to use to bring about the atonement for our sin. The reason being is, is that death was the result of sin, is what the Bible teaches. And so if there was death prior to the fall, that would mean that death was not a result of sin. And so that was something that we looked at and really thought about as we understand why God did things the way that He did them and how important it is for us even to this day. But as we move on forward into the book of Genesis, uh, we want to look tonight, I want to look tonight at Genesis chapter 6 specifically because there's a big turning point that takes place here. We had the creation and then we had sin, right, the fall. Now we come to this great catastrophe or this great flood that's spoken about in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, and we really want to focus tonight on chapter 6. Notice what's coming uh, to pass, as it says in verse 1, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Heavenly Fathers, we take some time to consider Genesis chapter 6 tonight, and as so we see time marching on, and as the sin has uh, just become overwhelming in the world at this point in history, and as you bring about the judgment of the flood, but Lord, I pray that we would see Throughout it, the underlying grace that you showed to Noah is the same grace that you show us today. Lord, help us as we be- that we would benefit from this study of your word together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I read the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6 with a little bit of fear and trepidation, knowing that there are quite a few interpretational challenges in these first verses. And if you've studied any of these passages out, you know there are a number of things that are questions. I'm not going to be able to answer all of those fully tonight, but I do want to at least go through and highlight them so you know what they are and let you know what I believe on them. And if you want to have further discussion about it later, I'd be more than happy to do it because I think some of these things do matter as we we consider them. We see right in the beginning of the chapter as uh, there are lots and lots of children being born. The first question that often comes up is, found in verses 2 and 4 specifically, as it talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. And people often ask, well, who were the sons of God and who were the daughters of men? And I would tell you, there's not exact clear um, reference to this throughout Scripture, so this is not a position I would die on, okay? i just go ahead and preface it by saying that that I would be 100% dogmatic on because it's very difficult to be able to say this is absolute what it's saying and it couldn't say anything other than this. And uh, if you have a position like that, that's okay. You can still be part of our church. I think we can still be friends. But it is interesting to think about some of the possibilities. One of the possibilities that people think are that the sons of God are referring to angels and that these are angels coming down and having children uh, with uh, with Humans, so you have the sons of God. Some would say refer to angels, and they're having children with uh, human beings, and uh, so that's why we have the giants. And as it's talking about the mighty men, which were of old, men of renown, in verse four. I personally find that that view a tr- little bit challenging because nowhere else in any of Scripture do we ever see angels having children. We don't read that angels are are males and females, and that they're having babies and all those kinds of things. I understand the wording, the Hebrew word here, sons of God, is a little bit of a challenge here and could mean an angel in some places. But I don't feel that way just because practically I think we would probably see some of that repeated in other places. Um, But that's one view that some people take. If you take that view, I don't think it really changes uh, the whole rest of Scripture for you or anything else. So it doesn't mean that you're you're just a crazy person if you really, really feel like that's the way it has to be. Uh, but here as it's speaking of the sons of God, I, I think you can really also read this as just those descendants who were descending from, from Adam. So we had the descendants. So these were human beings having children with other human beings is, is how I would read this. And uh, But we had I think one thing that's interesting to notice that helps us understand this maybe better is at the end of verse 2, it says, They took them wives of all which they chose. So it seems like they were probably building their own harems here. There were these men who were very powerful men, who it refers to as as these giants and men of renown, who because of their power, they just took wives of all which they chose. They just said, "I'm, I'm powerful and I can have a lot of wives, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, but that's one issue there. So really, I think the main question comes down to is, are these angels or are they not? I don't personally believe that they are. If you do, it's okay. I think we can still be friends and go on down the road together. Again, I don't think it makes a huge issue either way. The bigger thing that you're going to notice, though, that this comes down to is found in verse 5. Because it says in verse 5 that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, in these days, in the Old Testament, were there giants? We know that's true. David faced a a giant, Goliath. The children of Israel, when they went into the land of Canaan, they talked about how they were like grasshoppers because there were giants in the land. We know that there were some very large people at this point in time. Did they have some sort of superhuman abilities? I don't think so, based on Scripture. Again, maybe there's room for that, but I don't think this is you know, the, the early superheroes that later descended and you know find their way into sort of the modern-day sci-fi genre of, of movies and books and comics and things like that. What, it, what I do think you had is people who were living a really long time, the gene pool was still very pure at this point. There hadn't been a lot of disease and sickness because there hadn't been much time for genetic mutation, all these things. So there's plenty of room for some very large people, some people to live a really long time, and then also you had these people who were, um, who were developing new technologies and music and all these things. So these were these men of renown. The problem is this. While mankind had some great power during this time, they were using this power and their ability not to honor God, their creator, but rather, as it says in verse 5, to go after things only evil continually. And this is, I think, the story of, of mankind throughout history, is that when, and even in cultures, as cultures have risen and fallen. Think of our, um, even our own country in America, in its early days, there was a great focus on God and putting God first. They didn't do everything right. You know, you can go back and find problems at all different stages in human history. And yet, generally, there was an idea to seek after God. And yet, as the culture has developed and as it became more affluent and more prosperous and more self-sufficient, eventually, people tend to begin to trust in themselves and turn away from God and begin to go after their own things. We saw that. You see that in history in the Roman uh, country, or in the nation of Rome, you see that in Greece when that took place, you see all this throughout history over and over again. But I believe this is what this is what is taking place here: that their heart is after evil. They have established themselves. They have built up some wealth. They have some ability and some strength, and so now they're seeking after evil. And then another challenge. Um, one small thing to notice. verse three so I don't jump over this, talking about interpretational challenges in these verses. Verse three says, "Yet his days shall be in 120 years." This is not referring to that mankind was only going to live for 120 years. If you take that view, you have a big problem, because right after that, you see people living four and 500 years right after this. So this is not saying that people were only going to live for 120 years. I believe what it's saying is God's saying there was 120 years, and then his patience was going to run out. That's when the flood was going to take place. Now one of the challenges with that view that some people struggle with, but I don't think it's a challenge at all, because when God wrote it, it made perfect sense. We read that later on in the chapter that Noah was uh, what 400 year or five, I'm sorry, 400 years old, I think it is when his sons were first being born. Yeah, or 500 years old, and then he was 600 years old when the flood was upon the earth. Yes, there was 100 years between that and that, but that doesn't mean that 20 years prior to that, God hadn't begun to uh, say what he was going to say about the wickedness of the world. One other challenge that uh, some people have is found in verse 6 when it says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Some people will look at this passage where it says, and it repented the Lord and say, how can God repent? Because I thought God doesn't change. And repentance is the idea of of turning from one thing and turning to another. This word repent that's translated for us in English, repent, is uh, obviously a Hebrew word because this was originally written in Hebrew. But this word is used to describe great sorrow here in the Old Testament. And so really what this is speaking of is not that God changed His mind, God never has to change His mind. God always does exactly what He plans to do. But rather that God was full of sorrow because the creation that He loved, rather than seeking after Him and worshiping Him, the creation was seeking after itself and worshiping itself. It's always a, a really sad thing when the creature worships itself rather than the Creator. I think even a, we can think of this in a very small sense those of us who have children. When, when our children are selfish and seek after their own ways, it can be very disappointing as a parent because you think, well, don't they know where all this comes from? You know that Why are they being selfish with their things? They would have none of these things had their parents not given it to them. How much more so is God sorrowful when we as His creation, rather than glorifying Him, And putting him first with what we have, instead seek after our own way and do our own thing. How foolish and how selfish that it is. It grieved the Lord at his heart. And because of this, verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it, here's the word again, it repenteth me That I have made them. God was sorrowful because His creation, rather than glorifying Him, was glorifying themselves. But I love the turning point in verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Well, we don't know a whole lot about Noah leading up to this point. We don't know much about him for the first 500 years of his life. But what we do know about him is summed up in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God wonderful statement about this man that he walked with God. Talked this morning in the message about having a personal relationship with God. This is a man that even though he wouldn't have had a Bible to read, God wasn't coming down and visiting with him in the cool of the evening like he was with Adam and Eve, yet Noah walked with God. What Noah knew about God had to be far less than what we are able to know about God, because Noah didn't have the full scriptures that we have. Noah would have just had what was passed down to him through the generations before him. Now, it's interesting, because of the long lives of people, Noah could have been very closely, you know, he would have known, like... uh, his, let's see, I think it would be his great-grandfather, if I'm right, Enoch. And he had Methuselah. I think it's Lamech, then Noah. So he would have known his great-grandfather Enoch. Enoch, I think, lived long enough that he would overlap with Noah. Enoch was a man who walked with God, the Bible says. And he walked with God so closely that the Bible says Enoch didn't die, that God just took him. He was not, because God took him. So Noah is a man who... Even though everybody else around him is doing wickedly, and we won't get into it tonight, but you'll see, uh, Lord willing, next week, Noah wasn't a perfect person either. He did some things wrong as well. Yet Noah was a man who walked with God. But I think it's interesting that even though Noah walked with God, it still says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Sometimes we might take the attitude of, well, I've done all these things right, so therefore God has to bless me. God has to do what I want Him to do. It was still grace being demonstrated to Noah. Grace is a gift. It's something given to us that we do not deserve. And God showed grace to Noah, and He didn't have to. But God showed grace to Noah And we also see Noah was a man who walked with God. As you continue to look down in the passage here, we see Noah's three sons mentioned in verse 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We see the corruption and the violence in the world as it's spoken about. And we see then in verse 13 that God speaks to Noah. It says in verse 13, And God said unto unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. So we see the grace of God being played out as... He comes to Noah and he gives him a responsibility. Noah, I want you to build an ark and here's what it's going to look like. And then he says to Noah, I'm going to destroy every living thing off of the earth. And then he says in verse 18, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. He says, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every short shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Verse 22, I think, is very key. Thus did Noah. Think about this, you're Noah, you're living in this day and age, everybody around you is doing wickedly, you're trying to do right. As far as we know, he's the one guy trying to follow God. God shows grace to Noah, God speaks to Noah, God says to Noah, Noah, I want you to build this ark, do something that's massive, build this uh, giant boat, I want you to, you're going to gather all these animals and your family and bring them into the ark with you, and I'm going to make my covenant with you. And it says very simply, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Just to make a personal application to our own lives, I think this ought to be our attitude when it comes to the Word of God. Noah's living in a day where the culture is going completely opposite of God, and yet when God says, Noah, do this, Noah does it. Noah obeys God. Rather than man, Noah is faithful to do what God says, even though it's completely countercultural, even though it completely seems backwards, and yet who is saved? Noah is saved, the others are not. I think Noah is a, a wonderful picture of, of what the Christian ought to be in obedience to the Lord. Because God has planned a way to save Noah and his family, just like God has made a way to save you and to save me, it's only through Jesus Christ. It was only through the ark that they could find salvation or keep their lives in this point, right? And it's only through Jesus Christ can we find salvation from our sins. And Noah was obedient to God. He believed God and he did what God told him to do. Now, I want to jump over to just a couple of passages in the New Testament and make a couple of points here before we finish up this evening. Turn over with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 6 and 7. Hebrews 11, 6 and 7. It's good to have the skiers back from Colorado. I'm glad you both are still standing on two legs. (laughs) Mostly. Got good snow this time of year for this early, that's great. Hebrews chapter 11 of course, is this wonderful chapter that speaks of of many people who are faithful to God. Notice what it says in verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. There's a lot in that verse, isn't there? That that, that God speaking about Noah says that what Noah did, he did by faith. Noah couldn't see what was going to come. He could only believe what God had said. You and I cannot see what tomorrow is going to bring. We can't see what's going to happen a year from now. We can only believe what we've heard God say. And God has said it for us in His Word. And God, as it says in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. But notice, as as Noah believes God, and as he does this work, as he prepares the ark, Verse 7 is very interesting because he says he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By the work that Noah did, walking by faith, trusting God, demonstrating that faith through obedience, he was able to save his house. But notice, he didn't just save his house, it also says he also condemned the world. Because... The fact that there was an ark meant that there would be some inside the ark and many outside the ark. Others were condemned through the obedience of Noah. Noah was the means by which God brought about his judgment on the world. In the same sense, when God sent his son Jesus Christ to save the world means there will be some who are in Christ and Others who are not in Christ. So in the same manner, God, in saving the world, also condemns those that don't believe in Jesus Christ. You see how this is? It's kind of two sides of the same coin. As, as, this, as God sends out Noah to build this ark, He says, everybody that's in the ark is saved. Everybody that's not is lost. The same today for us as those who are in Christ. Have salvation. Those who are not are lost. That's a very black and white, cut and dry, one way or the other kind of situation. But Noah, it says, he became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So again, Noah did not receive God's grace because Noah was such a good person Noah received God's grace because God showed him grace because God, lo- God just demonstrates grace. But Noah received it by faith. He had to make a choice to receive God's word and to be obedient to it. Just like we have a choice today to obey what God says and do it or to disregard it and go our own way. I want you to notice one other verse that speaks about Noah. There's several others scattered through the New Testament, but I want you to see this one tonight. 2 Peter 2.5. 2 Peter 2.5 says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, maybe you've heard, as people told the story of Noah, that... Noah was building the ark and he was preaching to people and telling them what was going to happen. That idea of Noah preaching comes from this verse in in Peter, in 2 Peter. It's not described for us in Genesis. You can read the Genesis account. You don't read about Noah going out and spending this many hours building the ark and then this many hours going out and preaching to crowds or any of those things. So, I think we have to be careful before we imagine Noah holding these great revival services every night and preaching and and, uh, nobody responding. I, I don't think that's what was going on here. A preacher of righteousness is simply one who is declaring the truth, declaring righteousness. Noah was doing this through his actions, and he must have been doing this through his words as well as he interacted with the people around him. He clearly did this with his own family because they got in the ark with him. But nowhere do we read of Noah holding these giant meetings or services. He didn't build some, uh, we don't read of him building some giant amphitheater or something and speaking in there. But there's a hundred years that pass by between when his sons are born and when the flood comes. His sons, we read later on, help him with the ark. So some point in here, Noah's building this ark. It takes him a long time to build it. Many, many years. To me, that's one of the very interesting things about the obedience of Noah. Because his obedience was not just for a few days, a few months. It was over a span of 100 plus years. Possibly as long as 120 years, because that's what God said that there would be 120 years till the end of their life. That's in the early part of chapter 6. But what we see about Noah, and it's, it's echoed for us over in Hebrews chapter 11, is a man who walks by faith, and he demonstrates his walk by faith as he continues to obey God day in and day out, over and over again. Think about it. We don't know all that Noah knew exactly but we do know that he understood enough and as hebrews 11 tells us that he was moved with fear so he knew that this judgment was coming he knew that this ark must be prepared he knew that god was going to send this and so it motivated him to continue to do the work but i can only imagine what it must have been like to serve god faithfully and to keep building that ark for all those years he didn't have a lot of support from the other people around them, clearly. Now, I also don't get the idea that Noah was out there with a hammer just by himself. He at least had his boys with him. He could have very easily hired other laborers to work. But the point is, Noah here is doing this work, and he's doing it without the support of the culture. He's doing it really in opposition to what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is doing things for themselves, Noah is doing something that makes no sense unless you believe God. I would challenge you as well with this thought, that as Christians, sometimes what we do in following in obedience to God's Word doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you remove God from the equation. If God is not there, if if there's no such thing as sin, if there's no such thing as a literal heaven or literal hell, then the things we do, sitting around hearing messages from the Bible or taking time to study the Bible with somebody else or getting up in the morning and reading our Bibles or spending time in prayer, coming to church, giving money to send missionaries to other places around the world, all that stuff doesn't make any sense. But when you put God in and you say God is really who He is, not because I say it, but because He truly is, whether I say it or not, and God's word really is what it says it is, then it ought to change everything about us and how we live and how we function. And I think that's what we see about Noah. He walked with God, the Bible says. He truly believed what God had said would come to pass. And because of that, he acted upon it. He walked in faith and in obedience to God. I see some great applications for us as Christians in the 21st century today. We live in a wicked culture, just like Noah did. In fact, you can go over in the Gospels, and it speaks about how the, the return of Christ will come when the days are like the days of Noah were, as in the days of Noah when men were seeking after wicked things. And people debated that for many, many years, saying, I think it's that wicked now. I think it's as bad as it was back in those days. I don't know. It's pretty bad. But I do know that as Christians, no matter what the state of the culture, no matter what the state of everybody around us, we can still be faithful to walk in obedience to the Word of God. And we can trust that God's plan, God will always make a way of escape, just like He did for Noah. We don't know what kind of persecution Noah might have faced, we don't know what kind of threats... He might have had. We don't know what kind of people may have made fun of him for what he was doing. But all we know is that Noah believed God. He obeyed God. He walked by faith. And God saved Noah and saved his family as a result of it. And I would encourage you, as you deal with the difficulties and just the ups and downs and ins and outs of life, put your faith in God. Walk in obedience to His word. It may not always make sense to everybody else, and it may not even make sense to you all of the time. But we can trust in an almighty God who did this work with Noah to save him from a worldwide flood. We can also trust in that same God because Noah's believing in a God who hadn't even sent his son, Jesus Christ. And we get to believe in this same God who has demonstrated his faithfulness to us in far greater ways than he ever had demonstrated it to Noah. Because Noah didn't have the advantage of, of knowing about Jesus. But Noah did believe God. And God counted it to him as he became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So, in our process, we've seen the creation, we've seen the fall. When God created it, it was all good. Mankind sinned. Death. Then we see the continuing effects of sin as people are seeking after evil continually. But God, even through death now by many people dying in the flood, and we'll talk about that a little more next week, God still made a way. He still demonstrated grace. He still showed love to His people. I think And I've read enough on this, and probably some of you have as well. There was plenty of room in the ark for other people besides Noah and his family. Those who know a lot more about engineering and design and things have worked out you know, approximately how much space it would have taken to house all these animals and creatures and and, uh, how much space it would have taken for his family and figured that there was a lot of space for a lot of people. And yet, no one else made it in the ark. It wasn't because God didn't make a way for them too; It's because they refused to believe God and take Him at His word. And I would just challenge us that we would walk by faith and obedience to Him, trust God, no matter what comes, no matter if things continue to go like we hope they go and things are great and everything's good, or if things take a really difficult turn for the worse, that we trust God and walk in obedience. And as we do that, I think that God helps us help our families, help our church, help us to be the kind of people that we need to be, to live no matter what our country, um, whatever direction it goes in, no matter what situation our culture ends up in, we can stand before God one day and know that we've been faithful to Him. Heavenly Father, help us as we consider these things, that we would walk in obedience and truth. Thank you for the example of Noah, that he did what you told him to do. He did according to all that God had commanded him. Lord, may we be able to have the same thing said of us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.